were to do what we're doing right now, they would be subject to death. And yet you have given us the freedom to open your word and to hear it. A freedom, Father, not to be taken for granted or lightly. So we pray and plead for your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that broke out at Pentecost, now to fill our hearts and to open the eyes of our hearts, which is faith, to receive these marvelous things from your word. We pray it with confidence and waiting upon you and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Mailing after mailing comes to the church, guaranteeing that if we just do this or do that, if we, uh, particularly if we buy this or buy that or attend this conference or, or that, why your church will grow. It's all about marketing. It's all about giving people what they want, what they like, the right program, the right music, the right lighting, and voila, your church will grow. And they are right, by the way. They are exactly right. You could line up the pastors and church boards who would gladly testify. They did that. They did the George Barna thing. They did the polls, they did the research, and they adjusted their life and programs accordingly, and they've managed to add to their numbers, hundreds and even, in some cases, thousands of people. Now, please don't get me wrong here. Uh, I long for the day when we are overflowing with people. We long to see your churches full, we pray oftentimes in that hymn we sing from time to time in our worship. But what is our goal, or is that supposed to be our goal? In other words, is what will bring people to church the question that ought to govern our decisions and, and, and set our agenda and, and form our thoughts and our activities as a church? They were certainly heady days in Jerusalem that followed on the heels of Pentecost. Day after day, day by day, the church grew. 120 disciples became 3,120 in one day. Imagine it. And not just days and not just in Jerusalem, but over the next 300 years, 120 
become one in ten in the whole Roman Empire. Why? Because they had the right programs? Because they secured the results of the latest Barna polls and acted accordingly? Because they sang music that people liked or, or generated programs aimed at meeting felt needs? Hardly. The church of that day didn't even think to ask, how can we attract people? How can we get the numbers up? They certainly did not modify their behavior or their style toward pleasing people. They had their aim set much, much higher, very much higher than that. They were devoted, and they were devoted to God. And devoted to God's church. And that devotion instilled by the Holy Spirit in their hearts took very specific forms. We too, by the way, must be devoted, deeply devoted to God and to his church. We have, after all, the same Holy Spirit that they had. Living in them, the same spirit at work in us as was at work at Pentecost. And because the Holy Spirit is in us too, we must be devoted. Like our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith during those days that followed Pentecost, we must be devoted first to the Word of God. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now think about this. Think about life in those days right after Pentecost. They might easily, having had the the Pentecost experience, devoted their time to recalling those amazing things that happened and that they had seen. Or they might just as easily have submerged themselves in the subjective to mystical experience. They might have asked God, let us speak in tongues again. That was great. Or let us see you do amazing things. Let's see the tongues again on everybody's head, the tongues of fires. Let's, let us feel the things that we felt. It felt, it felt so good. I want the feeling again. But no, the first thing they devoted themselves to was teaching. The apostles' teaching. And what were the apostles' teaching? Well, the word of God. We just heard the summary of Peter's sermon last week. He went to the prophets. He went to Joel. He went to the Psalms. He went to David. He took them to the Old Testament. And they loved it that way. They didn't revel in experiences, past or present. They reveled in the word of God. They hungered for biblical truth. And when the apostles spoke it and proclaimed it, they devoured it. They couldn't get enough of it. That's one reason why, by the way, we spend time in God's word here, not just on Sunday mornings, but on Sunday evenings as well. We want more time in God's word, not less 
Contemporary devotion to the apostles' teaching, that is, that devotion today takes the form of listening to the word of God as it is read and as it is proclaimed. Expository preaching. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the fact that expository preaching, the consecutive preaching of the Bible through books of the Bible, receiving its truth the way God laid it out in proportion to the way God laid it out and designed in Scripture. I say the fact that expository preaching is disappearing more and more from the church in favor of sermons, more like pep talks, really, on succeeding in life, sermons centered on topics chosen to appeal to people's taste, or the displacement of serious preaching by drama and videos doesn't exactly overwhelm us with confidence that the church of our day and place is living by the same priorities that govern the Spirit-filled church in the days after Pentecost. The disappearance of the evening service from the life of great swaths of the Christian church, our own denomination included, does not tend to indicate that we are moving closer to the devotion that filled the early church, but further from it. And that's sad. That's deeply sad. A church of our day will not be known in generations to come as the church at its peak, burning for the things of God that couldn't get enough of the word of God, that that hungered and thirsted for truth and for righteousness, but rather the generation that sort of fizzled and became distracted by the world until the Spirit had to break out again in revival and in reformation to realign our priorities where they will be, where they must be, where the Spirit of God really lives and dwells. God, rekindle our love, our love for and our devotion to the Word of God, to the apostles' teaching from Genesis through Revelation. For that is what the apostles taught and where the apostles' teaching was captured in the whole Bible. Second, like our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith during those days that followed Pentecost, we must be devoted to the worship of God. We must be devoted to the worship of God. Also, verse 42, we read that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, notice the breaking of bread and the Prayers, the presence of that, what is called the definite article, the, before breaking of bread and before prayers, indicates that these refer to the Lord's Supper and the worship of the church. Think in terms of the Anglican or Episcopalian handbook for corporate worship called the Book of Common Prayer. That's the sense of the expression here, the prayers. The early church devoted itself to corporate worship, to the worship of God 
together, to coming together and worshiping God, just as we're doing right now, right here, as a church. When we gather here on the Lord's Day to worship God, we take our place in a long, long stream of God's people and church history that actually stretches back through Pentecost, back to the temple, back to the tabernacle, when the people of God gathered together to worship God. A practice, the gathering at the temple, that is, by the way, that early Christians continued, according to verse 46. We'll come back to that another day. Where the Spirit of God dwells richly, churches swell, not to be entertained, not because they've got really great, cool praise bands, not because the preachers are such fantastic orators, but because where the Spirit of God is, people worship together. They love to worship God. They want to worship God together, shoulder to shoulder in his presence. They want to worship God with joy, and they want to worship God with reverence and with awe. They don't want to be entertained. They frankly don't want an experience of some sort. They aren't even after an experience at all. They want to worship God the way God wants to be worshipped. They want to learn the ways God wants to be worshipped, which is what they do when they devote themselves to the first thing, the Word of God. And there learn how God wants to be worshipped and the way he wants to be worshipped. God hasn't left us in the dark about these things, you know. The way he wants to be worshipped, the elements he wants for us to include in a worship service, even the tenor of worship, of reverent joy and joyful reverence in his worship. Brothers and sisters, you know that I have not been outspoken about criticizing other churches. I have not spent time pointing at other churches and putting them down. That's not what we're about at all. But I will tell you this, that much, much of what passes for worship today in many churches, in our own community, and in our own denomination, alas, fail simply and utterly and miserably to rise to the Bible's description of faithful worship. That's not to say, of course, that our own worship doesn't need reformation. Of course, we have never, we have never in this house of worship reached the depth of devotion, the height of joy, the holy fear and reverence and and all that we know ought to mark our worship, and that we work hard to make part of our worship more and more. But I grieve, I mean, I really am deeply saddened to attend churches when I'm on vacation and look at children in those churches, entire generations, being raised to think that what they're doing at that place on Sunday really is worship, really is what God has described and commanded in his word should be done and the way it should be done in his presence. It is grievous to me. John Stott 
commenting on this passage, put it particularly well, I thought. He said, every worship service should be a joyful celebration of the mighty acts of God through Jesus Christ. It's right in public worship to be dignified. It is unforgivable to be dull. At the same time, their joy was never irreverent. If joy in God is an authentic work of the Spirit, so is the fear of God. God had visited their city. He was in their midst, and they knew it. They bowed down before Him in humility and in wonder. It's a mistake, therefore, to imagine, he continues, that that in public worship, reverence and rejoicing are mutually exclusive. The combination of joy and awe. Remember what the psalmist says? Rejoice with trembling. That's what we want in worship. That's what God wants, more importantly, in worship. So we must be devoted to God's word. We must be devoted to God's worship. And third, like our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith during those days that followed Pentecost, we must be devoted to one another. Verse 42 again, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now there's some debate going on as to whether the fellowship mentioned here describes something that took place from day to day in the church, day and, and night, or whether this was part of a typical Christian gathering. Fellowship might well refer here to a common meal. This is the only instance of the word koinonia in Acts, so it's hard for us to tell for sure. Whichever it is, maybe even both, it is a rich word, and it describes a very rich concept. These early Christians were devoted to each other. They loved one another, not just on Sunday and then parting ways for the rest of the week. In verse 44, we learn that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. Now that's not to say that these were early communists As one sermon I heard years ago seemed to suggest and even promote, uh, communism confiscates what rightfully belongs to one person and gives it to another, refusing the right of private property. Jesus never denies the right of private property. In fact, he seems very much to uphold it. Even here in Acts, the Christians still, as we'll read later, still owned their own homes. Nor was it a form of socialism, a system which does allow for the holding of private property, but forcibly redistributes wealth from the rich to the poor. Think, for example, of the modern American taxation system, a type of no doubt, of socialism, even if you might uh, consider or prefer to consider it a mild one. Now, these Christians loved one another. They loved one another so deeply, precisely because of the Spirit of God who lived in them. And they went as far in that love as selling their stuff. 
selling their possessions, selling their lands, and, and distributing the proceeds so that no one in the church, no one in the Christian community would have to do without, without their basic needs. That was koinonia. Koinonia, which comes from the word koinos, meaning common, refers in Scripture to what we share together in the Lord and, and of the Lord. We share fellowship together in the Father and in the Son. This the Apostle John writes about in his first epistle, 1 John 1, verse 3. And then there's the fellowship also of the Holy Spirit, and we've heard about that often enough, haven't we? In our benedictions, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So you might say in agreement with Dr. Stott that koinonia is a Trinitarian experience. Our common share together in the Father and Son and Holy Ghost. But it's also what we share together in receiving and also in giving. Paul used that word koinonia to describe the collection that he was organizing among Greek churches. And the word is very closely related to the word koinonikos, which means generous. That's what was happening in the early church. These Christians shared generously among themselves, including even their possessions and their goods, voluntarily, real estate, valuables. They turned into cash so that they could share, so that none of them would do without. Real love, love with hands and feet, love that doesn't just talk, but acts, that puts its money where its mouth is sacrificially and generously. I've had the blessing of seeing this in our own congregation. Often, I myself have been the privileged conveyor of cash from one of you families to another in this congregation. Uh, Or anonymous gifts between each other I've carried, and others of you have as well. We've all seen and experienced how when one part of this body is in need, the rest rise up and fill that need. It has been an utter joy and thrill for me to see this in this congregation, this, this, this serving and loving generously between Christians to witness real spirit-based and spirit-driven love. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. The um, verb, by the way, there is in the imperfect tense, the scholars will point out to us, and that indicates that it was not that they sold everything all at once, but that from time to time, as needs arose, they would liquefy assets so as to help others in need. They would respond as needs arose. Now, if we are, as Paul writes later in his letter to the Galatians, if you and I are going to keep in step with the Spirit who lives in us, why, we're going to have to make some very conscientious decisions, aren't we? We are, after all, called to be generous. 
caring for the poor, providing for the widow and for the orphan. These have been woven right into the warp and woof of the church because they are patterned after the pattern of God's own heart. In chapter 4 of this same book of Acts, we'll read that there were no needy persons among them because the Christians made sure of that. And as the Apostle John wrote later, also in his first epistle, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God dwell in him? Does God's love abide in you? Does it? The fact that we have literally hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters who nevertheless remain in need is reason enough to give us pause who enjoy unparalleled affluence here today. We are the new community of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. In that new community, spirit Filled believers alleviate need and abolish destitution through loving generosity. Well, you can see then, can't you, why such a community would grow? Of course, they were also interested in missions and in evangelism, and we'll get to that too in good time. But you can see why a community like this would grow, why everyday people were joining themselves to their number. In their passion for the Word of God, they connected people to truth, to capital T truth, or as Francis Schaeffer used to say, to true truth. In their worship, joyful and reverent, they brought people into the very presence of the awesome, holy, but also loving and merciful and gracious God who both created the universe by the power of his word and also sent his son to die to save the world from their sins and rose triumphant over the grave. And then in their koinonia, in their fellowship, marked and governed and shot through with loving generosity that brought people into real, genuine community. Genuine relationships in a world so full of phoniness and disingenuine people. You see, they never had to ask, how are we going to get the numbers up? They never had to worry about how they were going to attract people to the church or what programs they needed to create, what felt needs they should address themselves to, how their worship could be made less offensive, less foreign to unbelievers' tastes, whether the sacrament should be removed from worship maybe to Wednesday nights so that, or maybe dropped altogether so, so that unbelievers aren't uncomfortable at church. Or what the most recent polls say about the kind of music that unbelievers like to hear in the, in the services. They didn't give a single thought to how they 
might add to their number. They simply devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. In other words, they devoted themselves to the word, to worship, and to one another. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. God grant us as a congregation by the same spirit who lives in us as lived in them to do the same. And as we do, as we really devote ourselves to the word of God, as we pour ourselves into the worship of God, as we love one another, may the Lord be pleased to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Amen.